In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Georgia lawmakers make moves on gun laws. On this vote, the yeas are 224, the nays are 202, the bill is passed. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. Reminder, if you're listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Coming up, why Democrats are pushing for student loan forgiveness. But first, the U.S. House just passed a bill sponsored by Democratic Representative Lucy McBath of the North Atlanta suburbs that would create a national red flag law. Is this truly what our founding fathers envisioned for our nation? I would say not. That the lives of children are worth unfettered access to weapons of war on our streets. We can do better than this. Patricia, this caps the national trauma of yet more mass shootings in Buffalo, in Texas, elsewhere around the country that didn't get as much attention. The Senate is very unlikely to move forward on this red flag change. Nearly two dozen states have passed versions of red flag laws. Georgia is not one of them. Um, About 30 states have not passed this legislation. But this is one of those incremental steps that bipartisan lawmakers, Republican donors, you know, mainstream voters in poll after poll after poll show support for these types of of measures. Can you tell us what a red flag law actually does? So a red flag law gives a judge the authority to um, take away guns or prevent the purchase of guns from somebody who is deemed a harm to themselves or others. And that's a potential harm. Without a red flag law, right now, uh, law enforcement and judges have to wait until a person commits a crime until they obviously confiscate their weapons. You have to be a convicted felon in order to have your guns taken away or have it be unlawful to possess a firearm. The types of objections that you often hear from gun rights activists are that there's no due process in this way, that uh, who gets to decide, what are the criteria. Um, There are a lot of specifics that would need to be hammered out. Also, in the Senate version of this, this is just an optional bill for states. It isn't something that would require states to have a red flag law, but it is at least a process moving forward to narrow in on at least the subset of Americans who are dangerous. And I think everybody 
agrees that if you are dangerous, if you could be a person who could enact a school shooting, if there's a real possibility of that, right now, law enforcement, medical professionals, their hands are tied in a lot of cases um, because the, the law doesn't give them the access to those kinds of limits. This would give them access to those kinds of limits in certain circumstances. And, and so it is seen as progress it's not a ban, it's not a widespread change to laws, but it does focus on that subset of people who nobody wants to have access to weapons. Now, Georgia lawmakers took center stage at this gun hearing, including Congressman Andrew Clyde, who who owns a gun store outside of Athens. I've been there. It, it, it's, it's built like a castle. I mean, there's even like a moat and a turret and you walk in and there's, you know, gun safes and weapons and t-shirts. And it's, it's sort of an guns everywhere type store. It has all sorts of uh, gun paraphernalia, not just weapons, but also merchandise and all sorts of other things. Well, Andrew Clyde, this is what he had to say at the gun hearing. Evil deeds do not transcend constitutional rights. It's the other way around. Constitutional rights are the ones that transcend evil deeds. What occurred in Uvalde and other communities like Sandy Hook and Parkland was nothing short of heartbreaking tragedies and evil deeds. Heartbreaking and evil for the loss of innocent life, but also because From what I have seen in the news about Uvalde, I believe it was mostly preventable. We don't know all the facts yet because the investigation is still ongoing, but I hope that this hearing is truly looking for legitimate, functional, and effective answers, and not just a bunch of left-wing talking points to fill the do-something, do-anything mentality that I have heard coming from the Biden administration. Patricia, uh, what Congressman Clyde just said reflects the concerns from Republicans that this could be an overreach, that this red flag law could be used to take guns away from people who have a legitimate right to them. And it's being used over and over again in in these debates as Republican lawmakers focus on mental health and other things that they say could have prevented this tragic gun violence. But really what's happening as well is that Second Amendment rights has become the litmus test, along with abortion, for conservatives, for Republicans running in in primaries in, in states like Georgia, where you have gerrymandered districts we talked about this in the last show about how it used to be a fringe position for Republicans or Democrats, for that matter, to say they want to ban all abortions, including in cases of incest or rape. Well, now it's also become a situation where Republicans cannot argue um, that they support even incremental gun change because they feel like they fear they'll be primary, that it'll be the death knell to their campaigns. Yeah. When Andrew Clyde ran in 2020, his yard sign was his name and an AR-15, a picture of an AR-15 on his yard sign. And he told me that he, when he was running, he told me the story. He had, he said, well, I'm a, I'm a gun owner. I have a gun store. This is who I am. I'm running because of what I felt like was an illegitimate mm-hmm. effort by the government to infringe on my rights as a gun store owner. And this is who I am. I want an AR-15 on my sign. And his consultant said, you can't do that. That is really, that is way too edgy. Even in the Ninth District, that is too much. People don't do that. It's not appropriate. And he said, okay, well, then order 10 signs of the guns and 90 of the other. And he said, first day, all 10 signs were gone. The 90 just sat around. So he started doing only gun signs, only gun signs. And then people would start coming to his office and say, where's that gun sign? I need a gun sign. And so He is in a district and in a specific part of his district that it's part of the culture, owning guns, 
owning paraphernalia, going shooting. Uh, this is not seen as anything that is extreme. The more the better. It is seen as the more the better. That's why he owns not just one gun store, but two. It's his livelihood. It's his business. He, however, is so extreme on this issue, there is no legitimate limit to guns in his opinion. And so when he was in that hearing, he wasn't raising his concern about red flag laws. He was raising his concern about any gun laws and saying that the only way to protect schools is to have more guns in schools, not fewer. And so he talked about, you know, this idea of hardening schools. And he said, I was in the military. I know how to harden a target. This is how what we need to do with schools. Now, whenever people talk about hardening schools, they do not talk about the fact that kids go to recess every day. They don't talk about the kids go in and out of schools between buildings. Um, Kids are not in their buildings behind locked doors all the time. And even if they are, the shooter in Uvalde used the lock to keep everybody on the other side of that door. So it is a very complex issue, but it has become a very simple issue to Republicans, um, especially in the House, in these very conservative districts. There's really not a lot of gray area. There's certainly not for Andrew Clyde. That will change slightly when this goes over to the Senate, because uh, in the Senate, obviously, you have people who represent entire states. And so they're going to have slightly more diverse populations to take a bill home to. And they're probably getting more diverse input from their constituents about what they think is a reasonable limit on guns or just on access to guns to keep kids from getting shot in fourth grade. Uh, It's not too much to ask. I don't think Republicans across the country think it's okay not to do something to protect those kids. And as with every piece of major legislation in the Senate, it needs to survive a a filibuster attempt. So it needs to get that 60 vote threshold, which is unlikely in this case. But here in Georgia, you know, of course, Governor Kemp signed what he calls constitutional carry, what critics call criminal carry, what we kind of call permitless carry, but the rollback of a requirement that you get a license to carry a concealed weapon. Well, the governor signed this measure at a gun store out in West Georgia as part of a broader package of conservative legislation that he designed in order to defeat David Perdue and to stave off a GOP challenger in general. And this was one of his campaign promises back in 2018 when he was running for uh, the gubernatorial nomination from the Republican Party. And he was able to say that he fulfilled that promise. At the same time, you know, after this, this latest tragic shooting, the governor went to a meeting of school resources officers out in Athens, uh, his hometown, where he did not mention any gun restrictions, not surprisingly. Instead, he talked about tens of millions of dollars in grants that he allotted towards school security and more mental health resource funding and more training for law enforcement, all important things, but no mention, of course, of gun restrictions, which led Stacey Abrams at an event that I attended a couple nights ago with high school graduates to say, I'm paraphrasing, but we should preserve Second Amendment rights, but also the rights of second graders. It was a stinging line, uh, one that I expect her to continue to use on the campaign trail because, again, Patricia, you know, AJC polls and other polls throughout the nation show a broad consensus of Georgians, Republicans, Democrats, independents, all do support more gun restrictions. It's just when you get into the Republican, you know, in the Republican subset in a primary with a smaller electorate, it's a much harder sell. Yeah, I was actually just looking at that AJC poll that 69% of Georgians oppose that constitutional carry, permitless carry, this idea that you can uh, carry a gun in the state um, without a permit. And that permit is one of the ways to weed out or to at least know 
who is carrying guns and do they meet this checklist of requirements? Now, uh, the governor's staff will say, well, none of those requirements have changed. You still have to, in order to be a lawful gun owner, none of that has changed. You can't have been, you know, in a uh, mental health treatment for the last, within the last five years. There's sort of a, a number of checklists to be a lawful gun owner. But of course, the only way to know if somebody's a lawful gun owner is to ask those questions. And the permit process is how you ask those questions on a consistent basis. And so um, I think, you know, my sense from just talking to voters around the state, I hear very few people say that they don't want anyone to have any access to guns. I don't think anyone, I don't ever hear anybody say, I just want to get all the guns and take them away from all the law abiding citizens. That's just not a conversation. But people are worried about people who should not have guns, people who are not well, people who are dangerous. And so I just talked to enough voters to know, especially moms, that they want some kind of progress. And it's almost mind boggling to under to try and understand how we have gotten here after Sandy Hook, after Parkland, Republicans on the Hill are saying, well, don't don't just have a knee-jerk reaction. I mean, this is a knee that's been jerking for 20 years. What yeah. are you talking about? Um, so I, don't, I think there is a middle ground here that uh, Republicans may find their way to. Um, and we'll, But we'll see, you know, we'll, once this goes over to the Senate. Well, guns isn't the only reason Georgia is in the spotlight in Congress. The January 6th hearings are underway and Georgia is also center stage in that. Um, shortly before the hearing, Washington Post and CNN broke the story about an email that Robert Sinners, who is a uh, you know an aide to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who but at the time in late 2020 was a, a member of the Donald Trump campaign team, he sent an email to David Schaefer and the other GOP electors who were behind the the phony elector scheme saying that they should be secretive about their process. They should act with discretion. They should even mislead security guards at the Capitol and tell them they're there for a, a meeting with, with State Senator Burt Jones and Brandon Beach and not there to perpetuate this fake elector scheme. Of course, I was there when this all went down, was was rebuffed at the door by a GOP uh, operative, who, I don't even know who it was, who said this was an educational meeting. I said, okay, whatever. I went upstairs to watch and to report on the real electors, the Democratic electors. And as I was up there, Patricia, our colleague Richard Elliott over at WSB was tweeting, they're casting fake ballots. <laughs> they were taking pictures <laughs> from inside. And at the time, I just dismissed it sort of as a, I mean, I reported on it, but dismissed it as a publicity stunt. But so much more information has come out since then. And not only are federal investigators looking at these fake electors in Georgia, but also Fonnie Willis and uh, the Fulton County DA's investigation into whether Trump and his allies committed voter fraud in Georgia, they're also looking at what went down surrounding that phony elector scheme. Yeah, you know, like when you're putting a puzzle together with your kit, you know, with your kids, it's like, oh, here's an eyeball or here's half a leaf. You don't really know what you're looking at. But then once you have a a better sense of what the bigger picture is. And you see that missing piece, you're like, oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. And I feel like that's what this is. And seeing that email 
telling these Republican electors that secrecy is of the utmost importance. Be sure not to tell the media. Um, the only ridiculous part is that within 10 seconds, Richard Elliott is tweeting it out. He's like inside <laughs> the actual meeting, tweeting out the pictures. Um, so it didn't, the, the utmost secrecy didn't go very well. That part was not executed well. And that really is part of why none of this was finalized was because it, it wasn't a, um, I wouldn't say it's the best uh, the best overthrow of a government that anyone ever attempted. Um, <laughs> however, it's very, very serious. And, you know, it has led to a lot of serious, so many serious consequences, both in the state and in the country. And so the January 6th hearings, as they, ha- as they start to make this information public, this committee has heard from 1,000 witnesses. They have conducted conversations uh, at every level of every stripe, every person, every player in the drama that you can think of has been talked to and is continuing to be talked to by this committee. But I think they're starting to understand we need to push this information out and present it while, you know, before a number of these federal prosecutions get underway. But then also so that before time gets so distant that people kind of process that as, oh, that happened and we're okay. So it wasn't important. I think they're starting to understand that um, they need to present this information to the public and do something with it and also do something to prevent it from happening again in the future. And we're going to have so much more coverage on that in this podcast, in the AJC's print pages, and of course, online. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other co-host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the three political insiders at the AJC, along with our colleague in Washington, Tia Mitchell. We three write the morning jolt every night and every morning. We think it sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join our community right now, this instant, by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and your first month of unlimited digital access, it's just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. It's my ominous voice, Patricia. Uh, and we have a great jolt for you this morning involving a Herschel Walker claim that is easily refuted that hasn't gotten as much media attention and is about to get a lot more media attention. Uh, we expect it to make quite uh, a few waves. Now, Patricia, you know, uh, pivoting from the Senate race back to the gubernatorial contest, I, actually, we're not even pivoting because both Senator Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams, one of the central 
planks of their campaign platforms has been uh, supporting f- Joe Biden's push to forgive student loan debt. And right now there's a debate raging in the democratic world over how much exactly to forgive. Should it be 10,000? Should it be 50,000? What sort of income limits should be put on it? But either way, we have both Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams making it a priority. Here's what Stacey Abrams said on the Chuck Williams podcast, explaining why student loan forgiveness is so important to her. We've been very clear in our conversations with uh, the Biden administration that student loan forgiveness is essential for economic development in the state of Georgia. Too many of our people cannot afford to make choices to improve their lives because they are burdened by debt. You shouldn't have the equivalent of a mortgage when you're 22 and you don't have a house. Those are solvable problems, and we are very excited about the likelihood that President Biden is going to take the steps necessary to start to solve them. Patricia, Senator Warnock used similar language. He said, you shouldn't have to have a mortgage before you have a mortgage. Um, But this is also somewhat dicey territory. There's a lot of Democrats, there's a lot of moderates and independents, and especially, of course, Republicans who are against this proposal. They fear it will lead to more inflation. And they also question whether or not it's fair, you know, that, that folks just a few years ago didn't have access to this, people who have paid off their loans, who who were who were intent on keeping their their loan repayment schedule, you know, will not benefit from any sort of loan forgiveness in this way, whereas people who didn't do. And there's other others who just say, look, look, you you signed up for this. You weren't forced to take these loans out. What Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock and others, including Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who has made this a major priority of her own, they say is that it'll bring more equity and diversity into the higher education system by allowing students who otherwise wouldn't even think of applying for colleges and taking out these high loans to do so. Yeah, I I still have yet to see a proposal that describes exactly who absorbs that debt. Does the federal government pay off the debt? There's no such thing as sort of forgiving debt because most people's student loans are private student loans. The huge high dollar loans are private student loans. There are federal, there are smaller federal loans that go out to students. But once you reach your borrowing limit at the federal level, then you get kicked into the private level. I know this because I have student loans. <laughs> so I can tell you all about it from you grad school. <laughs> yes, I need to pay them off. I like to do them like little by or, little. I'm sharing way too you much. Don't. Maybe you don't need to pay. Maybe them off. I, I don't. Would, Hello. I would, I would um, so yes. Yeah, so so uh, even Barack Obama talked about having student debt until he sold his book as a senator. So you know these loans can certainly follow you into adulthood. Luckily, I just went to one year of grad school. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been able to buy a house. So it's a very real situation. But the driver of these loans, the driver of the hospital of the high debt load is the cost of education, the underlying cost to go to college and to go to grad school. This has ballooned. And um, the cost to go to school has so far outpaced inflation. Throwing money at it, economists will tell you, is only going to drive up the cost further. And so I have not seen the numbers on it that it make this make sense. I can see why it's an attractive 
uh, premise for campaigns and why it's a very attractive premise for students who took out these loans as as teenagers. Um, mm-hmm. And they will follow them well into adulthood. And really, in that moment when you are you know signing up for school, and they're like, this can all be yours if you just sign right here and take out a loan and it'll be fine. You know, as an 18-year-old without your frontal lobe fully formed, that does <laughs> seem like a good idea. But it, the, the economics almost never makes sense. And this is the first generation that we have of people who've taken out $100,000, $200,000 worth of loans oh, yeah. and needing to live your life on a salary early in your career is very difficult. Planning your life after that is even harder. And so it is an incredible conundrum. But I have not heard, I've not seen a bank raise its hand to say, that's fine. We're ready to, you know, to forgive that trillion dollars of, of federal student debt. I, I haven't seen the banks get involved here. Once they get involved, I think you've got a real possibility. But while it's still just politicians talking about it, I'm, I don't see how it's a reality. And you're right. I mean, the the plan is still being formed. We're talking about $1.7 trillion in overall student debt, but I don't think it would tackle all of that. There'd be a pieces of it. So far, we don't know many specifics. We do know that one of the proposals floated was $10,000, but critics say that, hey, you know, that's 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 only a drop in the bucket. That's not going to bring meaningful change to many people who are, you know, who have incurred um, huge debt. And Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams have both pushed for more aggressive steps. Uh, Senator Warnock's office said that he thinks $10,000 is a first, a good first step, but he's fighting um, for much more aggressive steps from Joe Biden. And look, he's gone to the White House several times and made the case to the administration officials saying as such. Um, but Patricia, you know, your comments hit the nail on the head on the, the other issue is that this doesn't do anything to fix the systemic issues of the the college industry. And even people like me who went on the went to UGA on the Hope Scholarship back when it provided book money and all this other stuff, I still took out a significant amount of student loans for other costs for for room and board and other things even though I had my full tuition plus some covered. And I got lucky because frankly, I had an AJC internship and AJC interns back then got paid. <laughs> and I lived <laughs> my, at home. My internships did not pay. <laughs> yeah, that one, um, some of my internships did not pay nearly as well. But this one paid what what it would pay a, uh, a first year staffer. And so I lived at home and I was able to spend three months and just hoard money and pay off, you know, at least a big chunk of the loans I earned. But, you know, I, I my situation is very different. And I went to a public co- state school, whereas folks who went to private schools and, and, and out of state schools and others have you know, significant other challenges. Yeah, well, something like the Hope Scholarship really does get to that systemic issue and really does bring down the cost. And so that's why that was such a popular program. And it's why it's a program that Georgia leaders are continuing to try to reinforce because it's one of the few programs that has actually reduced the cost, not just the debt load. Um, but, um, you know, in term, for a number of students, you look back to those 18-year-old kids, it almost feels predatory what the, the um, you know, the options that they're being given um, or that they were given before they went to college. And so it's a really, really tough situation Uh, from a political standpoint. Also, I think Democrats are really feeling the heat on inflation, really feeling the heat from voters about affordability of everything from cars to gas to houses. Prices in Atlanta have just jumped through the roof to buy a house so to speak. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> ta-da. um, so I think Democrats, particularly with Joe Biden in the White House, 
really feel the need to start to give some answers to voters. But these are sort of individualized, one-off answers. And they're important answers or proposals for Warnock. It is the cost of insulin. Uh, for Stacey Abrams, she, ta- she does talk a lot about student debt. But the overall inflationary pressures, I think, are what the real problem for Democrats are because it is so hard to get that under control. A lot of it has been caused by the amount of money pumped into the economy by Republicans and Democrats trying to get their arms around COVID and this just absolute shock to the economic system. I think people knew that inflation was coming. I don't know that they thought it was coming to this extent. And then you add the gas price pressure onto it. And people just feel it every day. I feel it at the grocery store. You feel it when you're pumping gas. You, it's just all around you. And so uh, that is, I think, the biggest puzzle for Democrats to solve. Economy, economy, economy. Uh, Patricia, now it's time for our listener mailbag. And you've got a great one this week. I do have a great one. This is from Frank Briggs, who was my Sunday school teacher in junior high. And he wrote in to say he loves the podcast. And he also had a question when he was filling out his ballot and when he was casting his ballot. Um, when uh, and with people going into the primaries, but also heading into the general election, I think it's a relevant question. He said he, when trying to figure out how to research who he was going to vote for, he wasn't sure if which district he was going to be in because he knew redistricting had happened, but he wasn't sure when it went went into effect and which races and which districts he was going to be in. So I told him he currently lives in his same district. But when you're voting, you're going to be voting for your new district and your new representatives. That doesn't kick in until 2023 when they're actually in office. But you are voting for all of those new people now in 2022. Did I get that right, Greg? You did. Um, (laughs) And I I would the, the best advice I have for any voter who's curious about where they live, because even political junkies, it's hard to keep track of whose district you're in, especially when it comes to legislative districts, um, is the S- the Secretary of State's MVP page. That stands for My Voter Page. And if you go to that page and put in some, some details about your address and where you live and who you are, it will spit out exactly what precincts you should vote in and also what legislative districts and congressional districts that you're in. And, you know, and, and even for, for down ticket races, what you can vote in, what you can't vote in. Because, yeah. And it gives you your sample ballot so you can look yeah. at who your actual choices are, who you're voting for now, but who will be your new representative come January. So thank exactly. you, Mr. Briggs, for that, aw- yes. for that awesome question. And thanks for listening. And thank you for being quite the amazing Sunday school teacher to Patricia back in junior high. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. It, <laughs> it worked. mostly worked. <laughs> uh, Patricia, who's up this week to you? So, Greg, up for me this week is Lucy McBath. It is not, uh, I know it's not a victory that she wanted, but she has been an advocate for gun safety measures, for red flag laws since the day her son Jordan was shot and killed. And so um, this has been a long time coming for her. And uh, the legislation that she authored was right there on the House floor. Uh, She was the author of that bill, and it uh, did pass on Thursday. We'll have to see what happens in the Senate, but it's probably a bittersweet victory for Lucy McBath. Yeah, I would say the same thing. And this was something that she campaigned on to flip the 6th District back in 2018 when she defeated Karen Handel. Of course, guns wasn't the, you know, wasn't the only issue she ran on, but it was, it was the centerpiece of her campaign. And this was one of her promises that she would achieve this sort of legislation. And she has. And again, it, the, you know, the, the outlook looks very dim for it to passing the U.S. Senate. But 
she pushed the issue in order to get a house vote and it was because of her relentless advocacy um she was she she never rested to try to get this passed and 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 it, now now she can say she passed the bill out of the US house um my who's down for the week has to be David Schaefer. The Georgia Republican chairman has come under relentless scrutiny. You know, this email that we talked about earlier that came out that showed that he was instructed to act with secrecy and discretion in order to elude or skirt scrutiny of Republican mainstream officials and security guards at the state capitol in order to perpetuate, to pull off this fake elector scheme is just one of his many problems. He's being looked at by federal investigators, by Fannie Willis and local investigators. And the AJC reported a few days ago that mainstream Republicans are fed up and Governor Kemp and his allies are looking at ways to circumvent the state party because they believe that he picked sides with David Perdue and the other Donald Trump backed candidates. And he did not deny that, by the way. And instead, you know, after they got destroyed, demolished, uh, humiliated, there's a very deep lack of trust with the state party. And guess what? Republican lawmakers passed uh, leadership committees that not only allow candidates to raise unlimited funds, but also allow for coordination between the campaigns and the candidates that could, in a way that could render the party effectively meaningless. So we'll see how that progresses. But David Schaefer is in a world of of, of uh, trouble right now. Yeah, his candidate's also uh, not performing well. It really does matter who those party chairs are, after all, it turns out. Um, okay, so my who's down, are you ready? Yes, I'm so ready. <laughs> okay, we talked about him on the last podcast, but this is my who's down officially for the week is Kwanzaa Hall, the yeah. lieutenant governor candidate who um, did not appear at the GPB Atlanta Press Club debate earlier this week. Not only didn't appear, never responded to the invitation. He also has not responded to any um, reporters' inquiries about why were you not there? And by the way, where are you? And also, what are you doing? And also, what are you? <laughs> been doing since you since you got into the runoff with Charlie Bailey for the lieutenant governor's uh, nomination. It's a, it's an, a really unusual, bizarre strategy. It, to me, it portends negative things to come. So he's my who's down for now. Yeah, he was my backup for who's down. But, um, <laughs> he has a lot of baggage and there's, there's probably tactical reasons why he wanted to avoid the debates. But man, at least sent out a statement. Right? At least at respond le- to my text. At least respond or at least do something you know, meaningful in, in the campaign mode. Right now, it just looks like he's trying to skate by. And he could. you know, He could. But Charlie Bailey is running a um, relentless campaign and has Stacey Abrams' endorsement. So we'll, we will see in a few days how that shakes up. But in the meantime, you can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday, Friday, or whenever news breaks. So we will see you then on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. 
Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.